Michelle Gary, and you're listening to State of the Pod. On today's episode, I'm talking about racial bias in artificial intelligence. More specifically, how AI is being utilized in the legal system more and more, and the serious implications that racial bias has when AI is used to make decisions about imprisonment, criminality, and more. The American legal system isn't exactly known for its objectivity, nor for its progressivism. Those who are familiar with the numbers know that America incarcerates more people than any other legal system in the world, whether per capita, on net, or by pretty much any measure. We jail so many people that our government has to pay private companies to run some prisons, allowing those companies to profit off of incarceration. As of 2018, America had over 2 million people behind bars. And even more concerning is that mass incarceration in America overwhelmingly impacts Black Americans, with some researchers estimating that one in three Black men will go to jail in their lifetime. As you can imagine, that number is nowhere near as high for white Americans. Activists and lawmakers all over the country have sought to find a solution to this crisis, and as of lately, some have been turning to AI. And yet, we've seen that bias in AI has manifested in all sorts of industries, Everything from a study showing that autonomous cars are more likely to hit dark-skinned pedestrians than light-skinned ones, to a case that we've done another episode on, where Google Photos tagged black people as gorillas, to Amazon realizing that its AI hiring tool was discriminating against women based on the inclusion of the names of women's colleges on their resumes. Each of these issues is complex enough to deserve its own episode, but I personally find the usage of AI in the legal system as amongst the most concerning. I'm going to focus today on a bill that was recently passed in California, known as Senate Bill 10, which eliminates cash bail and replaces it with an algorithm-based system to determine pretrial release. Joining me to explore this today is David Robinson, a visiting scientist here in Cornell's AI Policy and Practice Initiative, who has spent his career researching just this issue. A Rhodes Scholar at Princeton with a JD from Yale, David went on to co-found Upturn, a nonprofit that focuses on advocacy for issues like this one. He is currently conducting research at Cornell, but he's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches a seminar on governing automated decisions. He has an incredibly impressive background at the intersection of tech and law, and he's agreed to speak with me today to discuss his work on racial bias in AI. So I want to dive right into things. Can we begin with a really broad definition of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, for those listeners who may not be familiar with it? Sure. And I think the first thing to acknowledge is that people do use the term in a variety of ways. I think the most useful definition is just to say that AI means a computer doing something that used to require a human. And then on the technical side, when you have an engineer talking about AI, What they typically mean is that the system is somehow finding patterns in a set of data. So that might be finding patterns about which words people are saying and how that connects to the sound waves that the microphone is picking up. Or it might be which books people tend to like, who bought a certain book, uh, or what tends to happen to uh, people who have certain traits uh, when they're encountered in in a courtroom. Uh, But the the common thread on the technical side is that we're looking for uh, and automatically finding patterns in some set of data. 
if these are computers, if these are algorithms finding these patterns, then how are we having this conversation today about racism? How does racial bias actually play a role in artificial intelligence? Uh, like, how is that possible? Sure. So this is something that strikes many people as surprising because a lot of the time people can begin with the feeling that if something is coming from a computer, then it's objective and it's numbers driven and uh, maybe is more consistent and more neutral than what a human being would do on their own. Right. Um, and often technology gets promoted on those grounds. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when we're talking about a system that is going to predict uh, human behavior or understand what people are doing, then the, the place we're looking for those patterns that the AI is going to find is in human behavior. And so the AI system, let's say it predicts who's going to get arrested in the future because it's in a, in a courtroom setting, for, for instance, that system may be neutrally finding patterns, but the place that it's looking for patterns is in human behavior about, for example, who the police choose to arrest. And so really the biases and the racism that are in the world around us can easily get taken up into these systems. So just to stick with that criminal justice example for a moment, mm -hmm. um, if someone's accused of a crime, there's a moment where the court has to decide what's going to happen and before the person's trial has taken place. So mm -hmm. someone's accused, but they're not found innocent or guilty yet. Do they get to go, go home uh, and wait for trial or do they have to wait in jail? This is a really important moment for anyone who's accused of a crime. And one way that sometimes AI gets used in that situation is that there's going to be a system that's supposed to predict whether the person is dangerous. Because the idea is that if, if someone is dangerous and might go hurt someone else, then they have to go to jail. But the, the issue is we don't really have data about who hurt someone else or who was who turned out to be dangerous in the past. What we really have is data about who got arrested. And so the thing that the, the system can look for, for patterns about is what's the pattern about who gets arrested. But we know that in many places, the police have a documented record of arresting black and brown people more often and for things that they wouldn't have arrested a white person for or wouldn't have as often arrested a white person. And that means that even if two people behave in the same way and present the same actual risk, let's say, of, of injuring someone else, they might look very different on paper because a person of color is going to be saddled with this burden of being more likely to be um, arrested, even for the same behavior. And so when you feed all of that into an AI system, the result may come back that the, uh, the non-white defendant is, um, is, is quote-unquote riskier or might seem more dangerous. But really, that might just be a reflection of racial bias in the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system. So it seems like even with uh, artificial intelligence, Black people can still be at a really significant disadvantage here because what you're explaining is that the software might project them to be more dangerous because of biases that we already have, uh, even if they're exhibiting the same behavior as a white person who is considered less dangerous. 
Yeah, I think so. Just for listeners who might not be familiar with the, the criminal justice reform debate piece of, of this. So in many places today, when someone is accused of a crime uh, and the court is deciding whether they get to go home, what the court will do is set a money bail amount and say, if you if you pay money to the court, that's basically collateral or to a, a, a for-profit bondsman, then you then you can go home. And the idea is there's this financial incentive to come back. But if you are poor and you don't have the money, which many defendants actually don't, then you have to wait in jail because you can't afford to buy your freedom. And that system is really um, terrible because if someone belongs in jail, then they belong in jail, if, if, if you think so. But um, it's not because of the amount of money in their bank account that someone does or does not belong in jail. And yet today, the amount of money in someone's bank account often does determine whether they're stuck behind bars or not. So, you know, wealthy defendants, for instance, can can get out even if they're even if they are dangerous. And meanwhile, far too many people overall are in jail. At this point in today's episode, I'm going to cut in and interrupt David for a bit here because I want to elaborate on this really critical issue in greater detail. That determination of whether or not someone remains in jail, it is really crucial. And I think the debate we're seeing now over whether or not we should introduce AI to the legal system stems largely from the concerns and the failing of the current bail system. It isn't just about whether or not a person is locked up for those weeks or even months awaiting judgment. It's the fact that during that time, people have jobs, obligations, families to take care of, people who rely on them. And we need to remember that at this stage, they are still innocent because innocent until proven guilty. So it is completely possible and often does happen that someone will lose their job because they're stuck in jail, unable to pay the cash the court needs for them to be released. And then they turn out to be innocent. But by the time they've been released, which can be anywhere from weeks to months to even sometimes years, they may have lost their job already or had numerous other difficulties that will make reacclimating to life outside of jail more and more difficult. And more likely, they may actually fall into some kind of criminal activity going forward because they've lost their source of income. Moreover, numerous studies have empirically proven that defendants who are able to be released pre-trial are more likely to win at trial because they have more ability to communicate with their lawyer and get their affairs in order. And maybe one of the worst things about the current system is that defendants who are forced to remain in jail because they can't afford to get out will therefore feel immense pressure to accept a plea deal, which entails pleading guilty to a crime they may or may not have committed in order to get what is ostensibly a better deal than they would get if they went to trial and were found guilty by a judge. Somewhere around 95% of cases in the criminal legal system are actually resolved this way. And it's a huge issue because those people never actually get their day in court. Instead, they plead guilty because they just can't afford to stay in jail any longer. And again, we're going to see that this is disproportionately going to affect poor people. It's going to disproportionately affect brown and black people. And, you know, this is all a huge part of the reason why we are actually trying to introduce AI to make this better. Let's talk about Senate Bill 10 or SB 10 in California. What is that? What was the motivation behind implementing it? So SB 10, this statewide law in California, is an attempt to get rid of the money bail system as we know it today and to replace that with a system that uh, uses risk to uh, let most or many people go and to 
only jail the smaller group where they really present some hazard. And there's a big debate over what kind of hazard should be a reason to put someone in jail or not. But the reality is that many of the people who supported SB 10 did so in the earnest hope of reducing racial disparities and reducing poverty-based jailing. But part of the way that they're doing that is with an algorithm, an AI system, if you like, to assess risk. And that does create uh, a lot of potential problems. And in fact, many of my colleagues in the advocacy community were involved in the debate over SB 10 when the law was being was being uh, developed. Mm-hmm. And earlier versions of the law would have included controls that would have sought to address bias issues. For instance, it, information would be public about racial disparities and how the instrument was being used. And some of those requirements actually were eliminated at the last minute, right before the bill was passed. Wait, why was that? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, legislation is complex and it's messy. I think one of the things that is also true about this is that, you know, when you think about something like racial bias, you know, in the criminal justice system, criminal legal system, I should say, advocates sometimes don't like to use the word justice to describe this system because they think uh, with good reason that in many instances, it doesn't produce justice at all. This is a system that is full of racial bias, and it's been well-documented at many different steps. When people are arrested, when prosecutors make choices about what to charge people with, Mm -hmm. choices about sentencing, access to counsel, all kinds of things tend to be different along racial lines. And so if you're going to try and make an improvement in that system that's going to adjust something at the margin, then when you're done making your your marginal adjustment, it's likely that the system that you have is still going to have lots of racial bias, mm-hmm. right? This isn't a system that can be stopped from being racist through through small changes. Right. And so, you know, when, when people propose changes, there's a there's a, a bit of a, a challenge. Because even a new approach or a new system or like introducing an algorithm, you know, it's, it's still going to be problematic after, after you do that. And so then there's a debate that is about whether you, you, you want to have small changes that make things a little bit better or whether you think that a debate about small changes is really distracting us from the need to make bigger changes. And that's something that good people, reasonable people uh, disagree a lot about. So I feel like there are multiple concerning things here. For me, the first part of that is that this is starting to sound like we're just taking the current bail process and automating it, which is exactly such a marginal change. I mean, I know in New York, for example, the way a judge um, determines bail currently is based off of factors that would supposedly help determine whether or not they're a a so-called flight risk, Uh, you know, how long they've lived in the community, are they employed or not? Uh, do they have a family there? And based off of those factors, they may be given a numerical score, much like an AI-based risk assessment tool would give them a score. Uh, but the second concerning part to me here is that, from what I understand from your work, the algorithm uh, doesn't just give defendants that raw score 
uh, it actually also uses what you term a decision-making framework to give recommendations as to what should actually happen to that person based off of the raw score. So my question is, how can AI not just give the number representing risk, but actually propose uh, what is essentially policy? Well, I think that's a really good way of putting it, that word that you just used, policy, because the statistical model can tell you how much risk there is of whatever it is that you're trying to measure. For instance, the risk that someone might miss a future court appointment, that that's called failure, quote unquote, failure to appear. And that's often used as a rationale for detaining people. But it shouldn't be because what we know about most failures to appear is that they are not somebody who's you know fleeing the jurisdiction, uh, absconding away from their from their from their hometown. Usually, it's a much more mundane problem that causes someone to miss a court appointment, like that they forgot when their appointment was, or they couldn't get time uh, off from work, or they couldn't get transportation across town, something right. like that. And so, you know, suppose someone is a high risk of failing to appear. The real question then is, and you're right, it's a policy question, is what should we do about that? Does that mean we should put this person in a cage? Does it mean we should buy them a bus pass? You know, and that decision, which as you say, is a policy decision, is not one that the AI can make for you. That decision has to be made by human beings. And so there's some human process of deciding, okay, with the people who are this amount of risk, we're going to do this thing. And with those other people in this other risk category, we're going to choose to do this other thing. But those are human choices. And right now, we don't really know mathematically how the different risk groups respond to different kinds of interventions. That's very hard to measure for a variety of, you know, nerdy, interesting technical reasons. But the bottom line is that um, is that those choices are human, the ones about, okay, how do we respond to risk? Uh, but to be clear, as of now, there are jurisdictions where AI tools are being used to make that decision, right? Well, not quite in the sense, maybe I wasn't quite as clear. So, so basically, the AI maybe is saying, here's the, here's the le- level of risk. Mm-hmm. And then there's this map that says, okay, for this level of risk, take that action with the person. And the map is made by people. The map is not made by AI. But you're absolutely right that this is a very confusing point because when a judge sees, for instance, that this person is evaluated as medium risk and we therefore believe that this person should, you know, have to wear a GPS ankle monitor or something like that. Mm-hmm. The judge might think that the AI knows that the ankle monitor is a good choice for this person, when in fact, the AI only knows what level of risk the person the person has. And the question of how to respond, that, that's something that a human being tacked on to the AI. So, Let's take a minute to talk about the ProPublica study uh, specifically, because I, I do think it gives one of the most clear examples of racial bias out of the AI tools being implemented currently in the legal system. So one of the things that study did was compare the risk assessment scores given to uh, various defendants and also compare uh, whether or not they actually went on to commit a crime you know, years later. And the results showed that the black defendants were two times more likely than the white defendants to be 
incorrectly labeled as future criminals and, and, you know, white, conversely, white defendants were more likely than black defendants to be incorrectly labeled as low risk. So, you know, with results like that, how can a system like this be be lauded as progressive? So the the ProPublica result, I think, was an eye opener for many in the field. And, and, And you're exactly right that the people who make these tools tell you that the tools are wrong with equal frequency and are right with equal frequency about both white and black defendants, which, of course, that is something that one would want mm-hmm. in such a system, that it be mistaken equally rarely for people of different races. But the problem that ProPublica found was that it makes different kinds of mistakes for black and white defendants. Mm-hmm. And that more of the time, relatively speaking, with black defendants, the mistake is that the person is low risk but is being uh, judged to be high risk. Mm-hmm. And with white defendants, it's that the person actually will go on to get rearrested but is being termed low risk. Right. And so, you know, I don't think that a system that has that property can be fairly described as race neutral, mm-hmm. although you know, some of the people who work on these systems, you know, claim that it claim that it can. Right. They claim that their algorithms are race neutral. I mean, these are private companies developing these algorithms that are then used by the government. So companies like North Point now rebranded as Equivent, uh, the company in the ProPublica study, they're not actually required to disclose the models or the algorithms that they're using. So, you know, it's easy for them to claim race neutrality. What does that even mean? But you know, Paul Publico was able to attain some information, like the fact that there are, you know, various inputs and, you know, but at the end of the day, we don't know what all the inputs are. Uh, we don't know how they interact with each other. Do you think that this should all be public information that they're required to disclose? Like, especially considering that the entire state of California is about to implement this. You know, in terms of having the information be public, I think there are all kinds of things uh, that need to be public that include what are the inputs in a system and how is the model put together? And that also include questions like, how's the model actually used? So for instance, do judges agree with it? How often are they following the recommendation versus choosing to do something else? And how does that break down along racial lines? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, you know, in this conversation about judges making decisions, you know, and the danger that they might just blindly follow the recommendation of the tool, you know, assuming that somehow the AI knows what is best. Does does part of that danger, that problem, stem from the fact uh, that so many legal professionals, especially judges, lack an extensive background in STEM? I think that definitely is a challenge. And I'm sure that extensive backgrounds are helpful. Uh, but what is even more of an issue in my judgment is the fraction of judges and attorneys who are totally uncomfortable with statistical evidence. In other words, yes, it's nice if there's a judge who happens to also be a data scientist. Mm -hmm. But but what we really need uh, most urgently is that all or most judges have a basic understanding of how these instruments work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, given that we're seeing these tools be widely used, One of the things that I'm working on is to try and bring judges and members of the public and others up to speed on how these tools work and what some of the the challenges are. So if we take a step back here and uh, 
you know, take a moment to look at the broader context that all this falls into, which is, you know, a conversation about racism and the possibility that even technology can perpetuate racism in America. You know, there's a lot of contention in American political discourse over whether or not racism occurs in sort of these individual isolated instances, uh, or does it go deeper than that? Is it fundamental? Is it institutional? Obviously, our legal system is an institution, and we're now seeing AI, you know, literally coding bias into that system. So in this example, do you think it's safe to say that this is a serious instance of institutional racism? This is a is an interesting debate, and I think in large measure it's a debate about how how words get used. Mm-hmm. So some some folks like to use the term racism with a very narrow meaning, mm-hmm. and really to refer to sort of psychological interpersonal animus. The reality, whatever words you want to use for it, the reality is that we have institutions that are built on the idea of denigrating people who are not white and, you know, that were built that way a long time ago. And, you know, that I think even when we would now reject that idea explicitly, it's woven into the fabric of a lot of these institutions in lots of concrete ways, like the histories of, you know, who's seen as suspicious and who's likely to have been arrested, for instance. Um, or who's seen as likely to be qualified, you know, for a job. And it's a complicated set of interacting factors. So partly if someone says, like, you know, is it institutional racism? I mean, I I think, you know, like in the case of people being more likely to be flagged as high risk, even when they actually present the same level of risk, partly the debate is about whether it's useful to name that thing that happens there racism. You know, and personally, I think it is. I think it's very important that we name it that uh, that way. Um, or in any case, that we really stigmatize that. I mean, I think that's the real that's the real debate is what should we be worried about rather than what should we, we call things? What the, the reason that people argue about whether to call something racism is because we all agree that racism is bad. And so the real question is, okay, which of these things counts as bad in a way that we need to fix or address or grapple with. So sometimes people think, well, the only thing we really need to grapple with is individual hatred. But what I think is that what we need to deal with and what's in some ways the most important piece to deal with is this question of patterns and institutions Mm -hmm. and really results that are not equitable across racial lines. And that, that is an issue that comes up whenever you're using AI to make important choices or to guide important choices about people's lives. So obviously the goal of implementing artificial intelligence here is to make the system more fair. but we're seeing results that are showing that that might not be happening. At the same time, though, there's no such thing as the perfect control group to compare these algorithms to, right? Like judges are biased, juries are biased. So to what standard can we actually compare algorithmic performance? And, you know, is there a future in the legal system for AI? So I think it's, it's correct that it's very difficult to know for sure what effect these systems are having in practice. 
So for instance, somebody might be accused of a crime and then they're recommended as high risk. But if their judge thinks that the algorithm is is poorly designed and just ignores all of the algorithmic recommendations and just does whatever the judge was going to do anyway, then that algorithm turns out not to be making a big difference for the, the defendants who appear in that courtroom. And so really what we need to know isn't a description of the numbers so much, although that is helpful, but what we ultimately need to get to somehow is a description of the impact of these tools in the real world. And that's very hard to measure because lots of things are changing at the same time. For instance, when places implement a risk assessment, it's very often the case that they're also making lots of other changes. They might be, you know, because they're they're doing reforms and so maybe they introduce supportive services to help people get back to court or they send people text messages to remind them when their when their court date is. So all those things are going to, you know, change people's likelihood of failing to appear. Hopefully they're going to they're going to drive down uh the, the, the risk of people missing their future court appointments. But the algorithm that's trained on data from before those changes happened is going to still think that people are as risky as they were before. And so that's a, you know, a, a serious challenge. And m- meanwhile, you make a whole bunch of changes and then something happens to the overall level of jailing, like it goes up or down. And then you want to say, well, which of these many changes that I made at the same time actually pushed this number up or down? And in some cases, it's just not possible to know that. And so I think people sometimes have unrealistic hopes for the role that science can play in helping them make some of these policy decisions. And I think, you know, there's a real role for qualitative observation as well to look at what's going on in a courtroom and see what seems to help and talk to people who are close to this, including, for instance, defense, uh, public defenders and members of uh, affected communities. And of course, the people who are accused of crimes and those who are victims of crimes are very often overlapping groups, right? And so looking at what's happening from, from their point of view can be a very important tool to understand the system. It seems like uh, in this case, the issue or the fundamental principle that is popping up here is you know, judicial discretion, uh, which seems to be at the center of many different debates. Um, But I'm curious about whether or not letting a judge just, you know, make that ultimate decision, whether or not it follows the AI recommendation, uh, actually helps. Do you see a future where uh, the recommendations of the tools are more objective or more fair than what the judge just, you know, might do on their own? I mean, this this is already true that even uh, an algorithm that we know is biased, uh, you still might have a judge who's more biased than the algorithm is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the reason why some of these practical choices become complicated is that it's easy to say that one option is flawed, but um, you know, in, in the, the kind of mess we're in the midst of right now, all the options are flawed. And so the real question is, more flawed or less flawed in in what ways. I mean, I think uh, that the most powerful ways of addressing mass incarceration and racial disparities are are with policy changes that actually directly reduce incarceration and, and, and narrow disparities. So for instance, taking people who are charged with relatively minor offenses, uh, such as you know misdemeanors, taking most people um, 
uh, and releasing them automatically and not having, uh, you know, a statistical risk assessment of that person and maybe not even, you know, needing to have a hearing, but just directly releasing somebody, mm -hmm. you know, um, unless there's some real specific reason to be afraid that they're going to harm someone else before their trial can conclude. Um, and that's different than, than the idea of um, introducing a risk assessment uh, instrument. Uh, it's less high tech right. uh, and, it, and it's more directly addressing the problem of mass incarceration. So we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're very welcome. So that was my interview with David Robinson, who warned us that AI may seem like an appealing solution to issues of mass incarceration, but in truth, even artificial intelligence is severely limited by human data. So long as our legal system is thoroughly intertwined with racism, it seems almost impossible to create algorithms that can circumvent this. After all, as David explained, AI in this case is looking for patterns and using those patterns to make predictions. With a system that is fundamentally racist, fundamentally classist, and inherently flawed, we can't expect that somehow just automating the processes that we use currently will fix too much. I think David made it clear that this doesn't necessarily mean we should reject AI altogether. Rather, we need to be cognizant of its strengths and its weaknesses. In cases where AI can make more objective decisions than biased judges, I think most people will be glad to see it used. On the other hand, we know that the recommendations from the algorithms that are being used currently are extremely biased against Black people. As AI continues to expand into the legal world, we need judges and attorneys who have at least some familiarity with the technology they're using, who won't just blindly rely on it. We need more people of color in law, and just as critical as that is having people of color working on these algorithms and being involved with the research that measures their real-world impact. In today's episode, we covered a lot of really, really complex issues involving both the technical side of this conversation as well as the legal side, and I wasn't able to cover even close to all of the major points. At the same time, I'm hoping that this interview with David was as informative for everyone listening as it was for me. And I'll be eagerly awaiting the results from California's new system, which is on track to go into effect this October. For anyone who would like to hear more about David and his work at Upturn, the link will be posted to our website. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of State of the Pod. <laughs>